0: Hello and welcome back to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Garrick Heilman. I'm the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. The role of introducing and explaining the world of cryptocurrency heavily relies on the media. Both traditional media and social media are especially important to the vast majority of people still new to crypto. In the latest installment in our ongoing discussion of the crypto media landscape, I recently spoke with Michael Casey, a veteran crypto journalist, book author, and chief content officer at CoinDesk. Michael also hosts the popular Money Reimagined podcast, and in this episode, we spent time discussing a topic he frequently covers there, the outlook for central bank digital currency both in the United States and around the world, including why he thinks the U.S. will not follow China in launching its own centralized CBDC. We also discuss how Bitcoin has evolved since its launch and how he sees the key battle lines for the future of money being between open and closed systems. We also talked about the crypto media landscape, including the policy restrictions around what journalists can own and why Michael doesn't think the Wall Street Journal's outright ban on journalists owning any crypto is the right approach for Coindesk crypto journalists. Great. Well, Michael, welcome to the Blockchain.com podcast. It's my pleasure, Garrick. Thanks for having me. Great to catch up with
1: you after all this time.
0: Likewise. Uh, so we have a standard question we always ask all our guests, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna test your memory banks here. Do you remember the first ever money you ever earned uh, in your life, and and what currency was it, and and what were you doing?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I probably it probably was uh, you know some payment for a chore as part of my. Uh, allowance from my parents, which would have been in the Australian dollar, of course, where it's run from. So it would have been in Aussie dollars. I don't remember how much it was. However, my very first job was probably a little bit more interesting than that. Where right? I was paid by somebody else. Um, I delivered the, um, the the bills, the doctor, the doctor invoices from my my uncle, who was a, a had a you know, was a GP and in his his clinic he uh he decided he wanted to save it was a bit of a cheapskate uh want to save money on stamps and so he he hired me to basically drive all around the neighborhood and ride as it was on my bike not drive i was like 14 or something and uh dropped letters off in people's places which you know i don't he saved him however many cents on the dollar and i worked like a dog to do it and I used to get swept by magpies and you know it, w- it wasn't the most fun job in the world but uh it taught me the the work ethic i suppose i had to actually sort them all out and put them on the right route so i knew where i was going it was, it was a massive undertaking and i didn't make much money out of it
0: <laughs> that, that is a unique story i have not heard that one before um well of course people in the crypto space know you as as uh you know an author of books and um you know, you're in your your role as a media executive at CoinDesk now, but you have a whole background prior to crypto that I think would be interesting for people to know about. Tell us about your your kind of pre-crypto life.
1: Okay, yeah, um, you know, most of it is a journalist. Um, although weirdly, a small tiny moment where I before journalism was an accountant, which tends to drop people off their chairs if they know me well enough and understand how on earth I was ever an accountant but that led me to do a lot of traveling because I hated the job and I had to escape and ran off and did found myself and eventually after teaching English in Thailand for a year became a journalist and got interested in international travel and, and journalism around that so that whole thing led me eventually to um a bunch of wayward ways through the united states studying in the states ended up in indonesia as the bureau chief for an outfit called afx um and that's how i found my way into financial journalism because that's what that was um was that by that stage uh, engaged but then married uh while i was there and we moved back to the united states my wife's an american she um you know had this. she was doing a phd at NYU. So then I took a job at Dow Jones in the middle of the financial crisis in Asia, so got very deeply into the currency coverage part of that, End up leading into sort of macro coverage and so became a currency bond kind of an economics expert. Did six years after that, at the turn of the, the millennium. Uh, in Argentina after their big financial crisis, because my wife was doing her anthropology research uh, down there, and I was the bureau chief for Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal covering Argentina's perennial economic uh, ups and downs and all of its dysfunction as a a financial use case, and um, then came back to the States in 2009, uh, when the United States was having its own massive, and the rest of the world for that matter, financial crisis, um spent a lot of time again writing macro stuff running a a team of people covering foreign exchange for Dow Jones and the journal at that time and then we uh you know rolled through the euro crisis and everything else so lots of interest in um you know macro affairs international monetary issues um and currencies as as concepts and, and stores of value and mediums of exchange but never really through the lens that bitcoin then gave me which i sort of fell into in accidentally really in 2013 when i sort of saw a story about it and wondered what the hell this strange thing was and that was kind of where it went but it was it came from the lens of a guy who had covered a lot in terms of currencies and and you know the the politics and policies behind them um and, and very much shaped by argentina and its problems as my way to think about eventually why bitcoin was was extremely valuable
0: yeah, absolutely. There's a few things you mentioned there that certainly, I think, help explain how this caught your attention. And maybe you said, hmm, maybe there's something here that uh, kind of connects some of these things you've had a front row seat to in Argentina and the US financial crisis and uh, looking at the macro uh, picture as well. So take us back to to when you did discover um, Bitcoin and and um, what happened. Uh, you were at the Journal. Um, you know where did where did you go after you learned about it
1: yeah so i think i wrote a column um at the time which was pretty ordinary I, I think there was it was the time of the um cyprus crisis when they were shutting down the banks there and uh they were imposing a 10 percent withdrawal tax to you know eventually try to stop the run on the banks and Bitcoin suddenly bumped up in price. And people said, this is why you need Bitcoin, right? It protects you against this kind of uh, confiscation risk. And yep. um, I, that caught my attention, sort of wrote about it, but really didn't know what I was talking about. And, and uh, I was called by the folks from, from Circle, which were launching at that time, um, who organized a dinner for myself and a few other journalists, and, um, um, Barry Silbert was there, Raj Date was there, who was formal, who was at that time, had just left, I think it was the interim lead of the, the CFPB, with the, the Sheila Warren, had, and sorry, Elizabeth Warren had, uh, Sheila Warren's my podcast co-host, uh, Elizabeth Warren had um, created, um, and a few other folks who were pretty significant VCs and the like, and I suddenly thought, wow, this, these are actually folks who kind of know what they're talking about, and um, over dinner, it was explained to me you know how this technology could be useful for grappling with the the failures of states that don't you know have, have historically not managed their monetary affairs very well um, you know removing that human risk to 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 it all and 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 really dealing with the trust issue and That's when the penny dropped, the, you know, the the light bulb went off. um, And I realized that, you know, all the stuff I've been grappling with to try to understand Argentina's almost impossible fate, where it didn't matter who was in power, the money would eventually fail, um, was just a very different way of thinking about it. And I just found that fascinating and um, went down the rabbit hole, as we say, and, and just so coincidentally, Paul Vineyard was doing the same thing. And um, we just sort of realized we were both interested in this. And then, uh, first of all, you know, started covering it and then writing. Uh, we created something called the BitBeat, which was a column that we sort of forged as a quasi blog we'd have a you know a main story and then a few breakout stories about what was happening in the bitcoin world it was really only bitcoin at that point although things were starting to emerge around ethereum and um and we had that as part of the money beat blog which was a bigger portion within wsj.com and uh it was kind of an interesting hack because the journal itself wasn't really particularly interested in bitcoin but we were able to like push this thing out as a sub piece of another blog. It was you know, it's very hard to get a story in the paper, although everyone, the, the, the editors were obsessed with finding Satoshi and wanted us to go off and join the hunt when Newsweek had that terrible piece about supposedly unveiling Sa- Satoshi. We were told, go off and find him. And that was all they, they really cared <laughs> about. Um, and um, we, we, but we didn't, we just, we just again, push this thing out but to the to the bitcoin community they loved us because to their word we'd gotten bitcoin into the wall street journal right and and, it, and we did it was just a sort of very sort of smaller little section of what that was all about um and that became a a, a labor of love and and then the two of us agreed to write a book together and um we, the first one was the age of cryptocurrency that came out in uh, uh january of 2015 and by that stage i was well and truly you know, obsessed with this stuff. And, and one thing led to another, I ended up quitting the journal mid-2015 and went off to MIT, but we can we can talk about that separately, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I, 2013, uh, yeah, the Cypriot crisis was, uh, I, I think uh, certainly for me, it was, it was my first invitation to uh, go on um, television to talk about Bitcoin. There was starting to be some mainstream media interest in this. I mean, there'd been some coverage in the years prior I first learned about Bitcoin. I think back in 2011, when it was, uh, I think Gawker did a profile, or um, what, what, I think it was Gawker on the Silk Road, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mentioning this thing Bitcoin. It wasn't even the main part of the story. It was really about this online marketplace. Uh, but by by 2013, Cyprus happens, and then we we get this kind of bull market cycle towards the end of the year, where CNBC and others are starting to. You know, scramble to find folks who can come on and talk about things like Bitcoin what why it's going up in price. Is it related to Cyprus and, and other yeah. things that are happening? And um, yeah, and here and here we are. Um, Got almost ten years later. It's it's uh it's, it's crazy. But um, your book was certainly, I think, one of the most you know influential and important early books in this you know in in in, in the crypto space. And it really, um, I thought, really kind of helped. You know, uh, captures some of the kind of big ideas that were powering um, the excitement and enthusiasm around cryptocurrency. Um, I want to ask you, uh, you know, as you look back on on that and some of the the themes around the cross border payments and other use cases for cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. what what do you think crypto has delivered uh, in terms of its early promise and, and some of the things you highlighted in that book? And and where is crypto still maybe falling a bit short or hasn't really fulfilled the kind of hype and excitement um, from that period, at least. Yeah,
1: yeah look, I, I, I think I, you know, we didn't have a sophisticated understanding at the time necessarily of the tension between the idea of Bitcoin as a store of value and as, as a medium of exchange, right? And and I, and I think that um, we would we would write about them sort of almost... Coherently, as if well, yeah, Bitcoin's gonna um, succeed because it's a payment vehicle, which has mean its price is gonna go up. And like you know, there's a whole, as you would well know, you know, real issues around um, you know Gresham's law or these kind of concepts of like whether or not this is um, you know good money chases bad, uh, bad money chases out good, and so forth, right? Um, and so I think that it's become clear for Bitcoin, at least, that. The, the speculative use case, the store of value, the idea that this is something that you would own as, as digital gold is, is, probably, is, is one out, right, for Bitcoin. Um, but I do think that like some of the stuff we were really interested in, uh, if you remember the book, and, and it's just began, it was a reflection of my own broad interest in international monetary affairs was sort of speculative. I feel this is one of the things I'm proud about. Like we, we, did, we really speculated and, and threw out there the idea of a central bank digital currency um, mm-hmm. and the idea that there would be these these and these other means of, of exchange that would, would go global and that maybe large corporations might start owning Bitcoin and, and these things. And so um, some of that has really, you know, certainly in the last couple of years come true. Now it's not on the scale necessarily that we thought it might be I, I, I always go when I get these sorts of questions. I'm always like, like, yeah, I, I, on one level, I could never imagine that we are as big as we are now. On other levels, it's like fallen well short. So um, I, 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 I like, I, I do like to remind people that those who naturally sort of dismiss, well, Bitcoin or crypto hasn't lived up to its promises, um, to remind people that, that like this is an open source technology and therefore you can't narrowly define one element or other as being the metric, the the, the gauge by which you measure success, right? Mm -hmm. Stablecoins and um, uh, central bank digital currencies, and for that matter, you know, blockchain applications for supply chains, and of course now NFTs and the way that they're being used by, you know, massive media companies, all of that (laughs) stems from Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Without it, we wouldn't have it. People just dismiss crypto. CBDCs as if, well, they're not, they're not crypto, they're, they're they're a centralized ledger and so forth, which is which is true. However, I mean, certainly the, the, the use cases that are prominent in places like China, but they're very much motivated by, founded by, and, and driven by a lot of the principles of PoundWatch, Watch, which Bitcoin was was created, whether we like it or not, right? And and that, that is really important to see that this was all spawned by that. By that invention which of course is itself a derivative of a whole bunch of other preceding technologies but like Bitcoin was a moment that exploded all of this great variety of uh, uh, of, of innovative ideas that to my mind inevitably are going to dramatically change and already are uh, the structure of our global financial system
0: yeah absolutely and yeah, even the language and terms that we use to describe things like Bitcoin now have evolved. You know, we, we use cryptocurrency less um, and we use the term crypto asset or crypto or, um, mm-hmm. you know, but but there's some who feel like, you know, it, it kind of was essential for 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 Bitcoin to, to kind of like focus on that store value use case maybe initially and maybe down the road, we could see it used more as a currency, perhaps after um its prices you know achieve some kind of equilibrium or or certainly less volatile um and people feel like it's it's upside is is more fully realized maybe maybe it will start to use uh be used more as a currency but 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 we sell we shall see yeah I, mean,
1: um, I, I tend to subscribe to that to some extent right I, I i think that like if you think about gold right which just evolved to become you know for many many years um uh, Currency of the world. I mean, not you know, it was then co-opted by sovereigns very early on, and gold coins were part of it, and then the gold standard was everything. So, gold was the currency for for, for much of history, but you know, it it wouldn't have happened instantaneously. It it, it would have had to have had some sense of value. I think you know, we just don't have the records to know but that you know, there would have because you can't instantaneously snap your fingers and have something be immediately accepted as a, as a universal medium of exchange. It has to grow into that. One would think that there has to be a means by which it starts out as something that people start to value, to store and hold, and then it becomes this universal you know, denominator of, of value that like, well, we can start using this now as, as a currency, right? So, so I, think that, I mean, it's just, yeah, the, the early dismissiveness that comes into, well, you know, money has to be a medium exchange, a store of value. I actually think that crypto might mean that some of these things become actually separated, which is a whole other conversation. But hmm. the, the point as well as is, is like, if we do accept they have to have all these qualities, well, it's a continuum, I think. You know, it's probably you do get there along the way because you can't snap your fingers and create that. That's not to say that history hasn't done that in the past because we wouldn't have had these things to emerge as currencies if they hadn't. So, um, you know, it's early is actually a legitimate thing to say. <laughs> Expectations are extremely high if you think you can make a currency. be all have all those qualities instantaneously. You just can't. So um, we, we shall see is actually a reasonable thing to say.
0: Yeah, I, I, I want to... Um chat with you briefly about um, journalism, Uh, I I like to tell people, you know, that, you know, the media is through how we, the vast majority of us learn about new things, not everyone gets to come to, you know, the University of Cambridge or, you know, MIT and, and, uh, you know, and, and learn about something like Bitcoin, it's through, through journalism, through the Wall Street Journal, through Coindesk, that the vast majority of people come to know about what's happening in the world, what is Bitcoin, and there's there's uh, you know some some uh, restrictions uh, that journalists often um, adopt on, on what they can do and what they can own um, when they when they choose to become a journalist and and um, some of this is relevant I think to uh, what's happening with like for example the the Federal Reserve's kind of ongoing controversy around you know investment policies and things like that and I was just wondering if you can you speak to that that particular aspect of being a journalist um, and and where you see kind of like, you know, the the line, um, where it should be in terms of what a journalist can own, who's covering crypto, what policymakers, you know, um, because it is very relevant, I think, to what's being debated in Congress and and in central banks today about what they can and own or how active they should be and and why that's important or is that becoming less important and is it fair? Um, (laughs) Yeah um
1: yeah like it's 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 a I, I, many layers of this because uh when i was at the wall street journal yes we had a policy you couldn't own what you covered and um a sound policy it's just sort of standard stuff for lots of media organizations um and you know i was at the time thinking you know is is, is that fair uh because if this is a currency why would you stop people from owning the dollar because they're covering you know payments um of course not right um uh but you know i I think if we just go back to what we just said a moment ago that like it did emerge really as a speculative asset then uh, yeah maybe you shouldn't you know it's an investment um but there's another problem that that i think for us now that i'm in the position of needing to hire people um you know we i need people who've got expertise in this. So they've got to be, this is a very experiential thing, I think, right? You understand crypto, you kind of need to play with it a bit. And you know, how do you set up a MetaMask wallet after all, right? And, and um, we find that the people who, uh, so this is CoinDesk's experience now, who have um, you know, the right kind of knowledge of people who actually do own some, who've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've really shifted there. Uh, obviously we're very focused on disclosure. Um, and so every bio people, you know, we have a limit of amount of money that we consider material and then anything below or above that, people should report it. And they, these are all laid out in the ethics pages, uh, uh, ethics and guidelines that we have on the site. Um, and so, yeah, individual bios, people will say what they, what they hold um, and what, they, what they're invested in. And that's the way that we think we are sort of fulfilling the obligations that we have to, you know, maintaining integrity in this. And I find in the crypto space, people are most, mostly comfortable with that. They, they, they tend to think that you, know, you gain legitimacy by being a participant and that like disclosure is more important than, than some sort of ban. Um, whether that's actually the right policy, I don't know. Um, I also think that in this particular case, in, the factors that are so big, this isn't covering a company, right? If I'm covering, uh, you know, Apple, or, you know, even more of a smaller company that doesn't have nearly as much liquidity. Um, and I write about that. Yes, I think the capacity to influence that price is very real. But, mm-hmm. you know, Bitcoin's again, it probably depends on which token you're talking about, right? So these, these things will vary. But certainly with Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ether, I think that um, mm-hmm. the idea that you could you know, certainly with a true story, like the angle, you could probably make up some some ridiculous lie, but that hopefully would be uncovered. Um, the, the ability to sort of give a slant to a story that somehow influences the price, I think, is is, is almost non existence. So, you know, to us, it's about exposure, it's about um, and, and just disclosure rather, um, and, and just sort of like maintaining the integrity of good journalism. And I think that's kind of the best way to be right now, because this is going to be universal, I think, right? And, and how are you gonna keep people from participating in this, um, you know, going about their normal lives, you know? So it's a, um, I think this is, I feel like we've landed in the right place at find it.
0: Okay, yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's really helpful and, and, and good to hear. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about MIT's digital currency initiative where you were for, for um, a while which is also playing a really important role in Project Hamilton. This initiative um, operated, I believe, out of the the Boston Federal Reserve Bank to kind of explore and even design um, a a central bank digital currency. And um, yeah, the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, for those who aren't aware, has kind of occupied this really unique and interesting space in in the crypto landscape for, for quite a while. Um, and you were you were there for the, the founding of that? Is that that correct? I wouldn't say quite the founding. Not just very
1: shortly afterwards. Yeah, I mean once, once Brian Ford, who you know founded it. Um, well, it was, it was founded by a couple of um, uh, Sloan students, um, uh, Jeremy Rubin and um, uh, Daniel Elitzer, um, and then they got the support of the Media Lab to make something of it. And and ultimately Brian Ford came in as the first director. He was a former. Um, advisor to obama uh, and then brian started hiring people and i was one of the one of the early hires um, in uh 2015 mid 2015.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and your role there was tell us about what you did there i
1: I mean i was formerly as a senior advisor um that was just the title we went for um i you know i I led some research projects i uh i co-taught some classes um i you know helped i think in terms of the comms not necessarily as a comms director but i was sort of something of the public face. The our book had really just come out. And so I was doing a lot of public speaking. And that became another way to like really get the message out about what the DCI was all about. Um, you know, I I was really focused on a lot of uh my research was the stuff I was most interested in. I was exploring um blockchain applications for financial inclusion. Um and then that sort of morphed into a specific project with regards to um environmental issues as well. We were uh we ended up um, developing a program for funding for crowdfunding essentially um, and, and, and creating you know a collateral system for the development of um, decentralized microgrids, um, in particular in, in, in Puerto Rico as a way to like create new forms of collateral around energy usage and using the blockchain and smart contracts as a way to um, you know, manage that, that process for the sake of protecting investors and keeping, uh a decentralized low low cost form of finance for these under you know these low income communities to develop these projects um so that was that was a lot of fun um and uh you know we did we we taught classes we had you know some we had students work on projects it, it was yeah it was lots of different things going on to be honest
0: yeah and, and for those who don't know the digital currency initiative also was uh uh, an early supporter of, of some of the um, Bitcoin developers uh, yeah. and provided uh, funding for, for folks who are working on this uh, open source uh, uh, software. Um, and then- well, that's and It was it, a really important moment because it was that at that time, um,
1: Bitcoin price had collapsed. And the Bitcoin foundation, which was playing this role at the time as a kind of a, a, a conduit of money from, you know, venture capitalists and a few entrepreneurs who cared about maintaining the Bitcoin code and therefore how you were going to pay Gavin Andreessen and a few others who, at that time were the, um, the guys who had the commit code. And so the, the core developers, the Bitcoin core developers at that time needed a source of funding that was independent. And so the Bitcoin Foundation was seen as a kind of a conduit for that. It had a Wild reputation for all sorts of other problems, and then the, <laughs> yeah. it essentially almost ran out of money because of it. It had sort of kept all of its finances in Bitcoin, and Bitcoin, being the volatile thing that was, had collapsed. Um, and so MIT stepped in to sort of play this role as an intermediator right? That could be a trusted institution. The funding would come in from you know different entities within the Bitcoin space, but it would be filtered through independently of the DCI. Without any influence from them, and therefore we felt like we could be the 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 body that you know help sustain development Bitcoin without that influence, albeit you know. So that was that was the thinking behind that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, so let's turn to CoinDesk and and what prompted you to to uh, to to go to CoinDesk? That's where I, actually that was my first full time job way back in 2013, mm-hmm. in, in crypto was. Uh, uh, working at Coindesk um, yeah. and uh, very proud to see that the organizations continue to grow. And, and um, But you, you joined in what year and, and what led to that?
1: Well, I was first employed, So once Kevin Worth came in as a CEO, he tapped me in, um, I'm going to say 2017, I think it was, um, to be the chairman of the advisory board. So it was a part-time role. I just um, helped them things together then um it really wasn't until the very end of 2019 that i came on board as a full-time employee when he you know he just sort of said look really want you to come and help take this thing to the next level and i came in as the chief content officer Um, but the um like just to say i mean i mean right from the very beginning of my interest in bitcoin going back to what we just talked about in 2013 i had contact with the with the context journalists and they ended up you know uh we ended up using the the Bitcoin price index in the Wall Street Journal at that time, Coindesk's BPI became, I think we were the first mainstream media organization to use it as a benchmark for Bitcoin in our BitBeat column. Um, and so I, I just had enormous respect for Coindesk. I, I, I felt like these were guys, I, there were so many people who were just in this shady, shilly space, and it's become even <laughs> more the case, I think, and um, and, and like for all of the stupid, I mean not stupid. Like I'd, I'd be respectful of your audience, but like, but there's so many people who just assume there's a conspiracy behind the reason why CoinDesk covers this or doesn't cover that or whatever. And it's just journalism. You make decisions, and 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 some of them are going to make people happy, and others not. But putting all that aside, I felt like these guys against that kind of over shilly, cheerleading kind of mindsets you got from so many communicators in the space. Were journalists. They, they took it seriously. They they, yeah. they were covering it warts and all, and they felt like this was the most important thing for this industry, that you you exposed its problems so that it could grow, right? And and to me, that was admirable, and it was also something I could relate to. That was, that's what journalism had always been to me. So always held it in high regard, um, always saw it as the most important media institution in the space. And once it sort of was growing and it was appealing to me to get involved in some way i wasn't ready to get back into media i decided i was leaving journalism in <laughs> 2015 uh was fascinated by the idea of research and working on projects and i launched my own company in fact uh, at the time a media, its own media project and these things were what i was focused on but um ultimately journalism's in my blood and um I, the idea that I could help build a platform that would be the most important voice in, uh, you know, the most important media outlet to cover the, this transformation of the global financial system at a key moment in its history was just too appealing to, uh, to turn down. So, it's the opportunity is and still is you know we're, we're, we're growing rapidly i think we feel like we could grow faster and there's so much to do now to keep up with everything but um uh you know it's a huge opportunity and i'm, I'm you know, really proud to have it
0: yeah yeah no i, I think coindesk continued even though there's a lot more competition now than when uh coindesk got started uh both from other crypto focused uh media publications and just the you know the mainstream uh, media also paying a lot more attention. I think CoinDesk CoinDesk still continues to to be a leader for sure um, in in covering and providing uh you know a trusted independent perspective. Um, well, let's talk about if if we could uh, just issues in in crypto today um, that that are you know getting your attention that you feel are are particularly important. You know we've we've touched on central bank digital currency. I know that's a topic that you've put a lot of thought into and 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 what else? What else is on your kind of radar screen or, or things that are really peaking your imagination or um, things you're concerned about It's top of mind?
1: I mean, it, 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 it's not particularly um, different for most people. I mean, you know, I, I am fascinated by this geopolitical moment right now. And this is where I think the conversation around CBDCs and stable coins and, and Bitcoin as a part taker in that future is important, obviously. um, And this gets back to the whole interest I've had for a very, very long time in the international monetary system. So cutting Russia off from SWIFT, freezing its central bank uh, reserves, um, in some respects, forcing it into a corner, not to say it wasn't the right choice. I I, I don't think the allies had any any option, but to take these hard line sanctions position I feel is going to accelerate the drive towards an alternative model at a time when the technology is available to do this, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and and the idea of a Chinese-Russian alliance uh, that would create essentially a workaround for the dollar centric system, Um, you know, whether it's atomic swap based smart contracts that allow for you know, escrow um, uh, exchanges to happen that really essentially don't just lead the, lead to a, a, a different reserve currency, but like literally just negate it as, as necessary in, in cross-border exchanges, that's where things are going to go, I think. And, and, and mm. that is going to be eventually a massive impact on the dollar. Um, and the US is going to have to think really hard about what it does next um and and i I actually think it could be a huge opportunity for for us leadership not that i'm necessarily advocating for that but um the 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 play i think is going to be closed systems versus open systems and Mm -hmm. because what we're talking about essentially is a currency war like a digital currency war different currencies are going to try to assert themselves and china's is a it's going to. It cannot be anything but a surveillance system. It's like the the state requires it to be so, and so, um, you know, that will be a CBDC that is fully of the ilk that people talk about being. You know, certainly the privacy advocates are concerned about one that tracks your every move, the panopticon. Um, but it's going to be built with all sorts of bells and whistles that allow for programmable exchanges and be integrated into supply chains and promoted in all of the countries that china is investing in and building technology for and so forth um what i think the us and and other um, you know liberal democracies have as an opportunity as well as a challenge is to present the alternative and that is an open system interoperable open platforms that that is privacy preserving. Um, And Mm -hmm. to present themselves as this alternative, I don't think you can do that with a CBDC. I think a CBDC by definition is something that um, the state surveils. However, I do think you could allow for stable coins to emerge in in that context. Um, What the US gives up in doing so is something that is going to be extremely painful on one level, and that is the power of Wall Street. Right, Wall Street plays this Um, central role, the correspondent banking system, all all roads lead to New York when, Mm -hmm. when there are transactions, it's how the United States is able to impose sanctions on entities that aren't even trading with it because the, you know, you can't, as a foreign, foreign governments and foreign entities will be sanctioned by the United States. If you um, transact with Iran, whether the U S company or not, or with Cuba, just because you can, the dollar, because you can trap the dollars, right? That has to go. Th- that won't work on this scenario. That, that, that's the existing model. That's the surveillance system that is the Bank Secrecy Act. That is, you know, all of, the, all of the KYC AML world is gonna have to be watered down in some way to allow for a more fluid exchange. But what does the US get out of that? It's absolute sort of dollar acceptance everywhere. I mean, dollar-based stable coins, if they were given the freedom to move, would be would be everywhere it's a different form of us power it's not sanctions necessarily it's it's soft power it's the power of american Mm -hmm. value leadership so i i that's the battle of our time because i don't think that it's you know most people in washington are not thinking like this obviously and 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 certainly nobody on wall street is thinking like this they they want to maintain this this critical role in the system because all those banks will it's a huge blow to that that power base and, and all of the um the wealth that's associated with that but huge opportunity for innovation around this um anyway so i i think that's just that's the tension that's the, of the most important the most interesting right now and it stems directly from this current crisis in in ukraine um i i'm fascinated by nfts and the idea <laughs> that we have with all the, as a, that that's a building block for a New system of property rights in in the digital age that we haven't been able to create before we are nowhere near establishing that yet there's so many different pieces need to be built but it's a really important building block for something that is essentially bringing the structure of you know capitalism, as we know it into a digital realm that wasn't able to incorporate those rights previously. And DAOs, I think, are fascinating as well. You know, decentralized autonomous organizations, which is something that we were, I remember, just loosely exploring in those early days at the age of cryptocurrency, thinking of it as some sort of wild idea that we mentioned in our book, and now are very much a part of the landscape. Um, yeah, this, this is a fascinating idea that we can organize ourselves differently. Um, yeah, so <laughs> those are That's the funny. areas I'm really most fascinated in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know. Love to love to. We had t- more time. We could spend a lot of time on each of those. I just want to come back to the central bank digital currency one, and um, and uh, I think you're you're framing this as kind of open versus closed systems. I think is is a is a very helpful way to kind of look at it, and it's an interesting perspective that that you take that there really is no way for a central bank digital currency to. To be as fully open and decentralized as something like a a crypto asset like Bitcoin or or something else, and and um, I, I you know and and especially in the you know the sanctions context, I mean it does feel like we've kind of crossed something like a, a bit of a Rubicon here. Where, I mean, the world is surely now woken up to the the enormous power uh, that the U.S. and its allies have in this current system to you know freeze funds and and, uh, and what that will mean to how people choose to store value and transact in the future. It, it does feel like we're, we're, we're moving into a new era here. But I, I just wanna ask you a very specific question around the US and you mentioned the possibility of, of kind of like unleashing stable coins more fully. I mean, should the US even launch its own central bank digital currency? Or do you, do you I mean, it seems like certainly some of the the leaders at the Fed have been expressing a, a greater openness to really leveraging st- existing stable coins and thinking about how to regulate those more uh, as kind of the right way to go to, to 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 piggyback on private sector innovation. Let the you know entrepreneurs create wallet software and design protocols, et cetera, rather than getting the Fed into that 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 arena. Is that something you agree with and and see kind of? Transpiring in the years to come?
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, and I think that um, uh, a watershed moment was that um, I think it was a speech that maybe morphed into a paper as well, but Randall Quiles produced um, a year or so ago before he left the Fed. The, he was the vice chair of the Fed. And, um, you know, he essentially said that, right, that the US leadership would come from open innovation and that there's no way that the government led central process would do that. And it was really leaning toward the idea of stable coins being this, you know, let, let a thousand stable coins bloom concept and, and you're right. And then that leads to a question. Okay, so, so what is the policy pr- um, imperative here? It, it is, how do you regulate that? And, and, and that's where I think a lot of the debates already going actually. Um, so I, I do not see the US issuing its own CBDC nothing like what China's got at least but it doesn't mean that the the regulation decisions around how you control stablecoins don't come come up against these same issues right um, because you know if it is something that is really just bolted directly onto the existing banking system and that um, only fdic insured banks and they've got to have all these regulations and it's therefore just an extension of you do it out of bank reserves and so well that's you know a perfectly reasonable model but um, we have to then ask our question, are we going to impose the same KYC constraints and everything else? Does it does it just become another mechanism for surveillance? And if so, it's not an open system. You can call something interoperable. You can call something, it may have actually some sort of software capability to do that. But if you've literally got a human barrier that you can't participate, it's not permissionless, it's not open, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so and, until you get to the idea of it, this is my view. I mean, there's it, different perspectives, but I think really until you get to the idea of a a, a non-intermediated cash-like uh, bearer instrument that doesn't have any capacity for anybody to step in and sort of censor that, I'm not sure that you can call it open or programmable or, or whatever. Right? I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that how China's uh, currency evolves like that because they're treating it as if it's going to be a programmable currency, but um, either way um the the capacity for open innovation i think is inherently enabled by removing a lot of that surveillance power and Mm -hmm. so how stable coins are regulated um you know is is a really important discussion Um,
0: well and how they're designed too because i mean right now i mean the leading stable coins us dollar stable coins i mean tether usd coin um uh, Packs—they all have, you know, these functions in their smart contracting language that allow for, you know, censorship or freezing of of transactions, of balances, zeroing out balances. I think they're often called law enforcement functions in the in the yeah. programming language. And and if, you know, the operator of the stablecoin receives a, you know, uh, a law enforcement order to freeze or do something, they they can do that. Um, and, and that's very different, I guess, than what it sounds like you're describing, which is more akin to what Bitcoin and and, and some of the other more decentralized cryptocurrencies offer, which is no central authority to go to to freeze uh, an, uh, an address. You could you could put it on an OFAC list and, and say, this is a sanctioned address that can't be transacted with, but there's no real person or entity to call up to actually yeah. freeze uh, Bitcoin, really, like you can most stable coins today. Uh, now yeah, there's I think
1: and i'm not i'm not like i don't don't see a lot of support for that very open model i'm talking about right i I just think that's where the tension is going to go and um you know you you say some of these things in polite company in washington they they look they they look at you like you're crazy right why on earth would you not maintain the existing surveillance system because there are all these bad guys doing bad things and i just think it's a it's it, it, that instinct is just going to constantly lead to de-risking. It's going to constantly lead to financial exclusion, and it's going to constantly mean that innovation is going to go elsewhere, somewhere or another, into Bitcoin, into wherever. And so, that pressure is just not going to go away. Um, I do also think that there are really smart ways to look at security and, um, you know, for certainly financial systemic security, uh, and, and other you know areas that enforcement, law enforcement, worry about that don't require the, the sort of the singular identification process that is at the heart of the existing KYC system, that you could build you know, f- forensic systems that actually look at nodes and clusters and sort of look at ways to manage access without it, um, necessarily this, this heavy load of identification that I think really, certainly from a financial inclusion perspective, is so burdensome to so many people yep. in the world. Um, and 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 there's not nearly enough creative thinking around that, and there, and there could be so much more. We we explored some of it when we were at MIT, but felt that once again that the that the, the state, the bureaucracy around uh, financial enforcement was so intense, it's so difficult to get out of that, which is why all those stable coins have those you know law enforcement backdoors that you're talking about.
0: Yeah. Well, we're we're getting uh, close yeah. to being out of time. And and one of the questions, if you know, maybe a good one to to wrap up on is one is we get a lot, which is where do where can we go to learn more information or you know, who are who are some people or or sources besides Coindesk, of course, uh, that that you particularly value, have learned a great deal from, help you help inform your view of the, the future and where things are going. Uh, any suggestions for our audience? Um,
1: yeah look when it comes to bitcoin i think uh, andreas antonopoulos is the is the the king of this i think you know anybody who's a newcomer here who doesn't know andreas's work you know go to go to his videos i think he just he just nails it like nobody else um you know i've been really interested in in this nft space and sort of some of the some of the kind of um folks who are emerging as commentators around that uh uh there's a guy punk 6529 uh who is that's that's i know it's a he but other than that i don't know <laughs> the identity he will be speaking. he was to-
0: on Laura shin's podcast recently and i i think i might recognize he had his voice disguised but i i it sounds awfully uh familiar to me uh, oh my well,
1: goodness i'd be interested to know we shouldn't we shouldn't discuss this i'm not going to say it on,
0: on, on here but i i wonder if it's someone actually yeah, okay, it, interesting he, he
1: will be he will be speaking at consensus which i would be completely remiss not to put a plug in for i hope this is okay yeah. but like Yes, the most absolutely. important conference of the year, and you know this well because you, you, you've been at it and spoken at it and delivered your reports at it back in the day a number of times. Um, it is, is consensus. It is the most important uh, blockchain conference of the year put on by CoinDesk. This year, it will be in Austin from the, the dates of June 9th to 12th in a completely new. Uh, festival format i like to say this is not your grandfather's consensus um it is with nfts and and dows and all of that stuff part of the conversation now a very different experiential thing lots of the classic conversations around everything we've been talking about in terms of money and and its future but also rich discussions around the future of entertainment the future of of, of social organization um and and entertainment events and acts and experiences that go along with that so everybody should come to that and punk uh, 6529 is, is in fact appearing as an avatar hopefully through some interesting technology um, at, a, at our event
0: cool yeah no I, I I want to reiterate the importance of in-person events uh, uh, I think to learning your way around crypto and and yeah. um, you know finding out what's what's real who you can who you can kind of like learn from and uh definitely uh yeah echo that that sentiment um so uh that's 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 probably a good note to to end on but michael where can people go to learn more about you follow you and and uh where should, where should we send people besides consensus
1: yeah uh well i mean i am the uh you know would, would encourage you to subscribe to a newsletter that i produce every week it's called money Reimagine. that's on coindesk and so we have a newsletter sign up um, uh, uh nav at the top of, of coindesk.com you can find the newsletters there also a podcast by the same name also money reimagine co-host for that is a woman called Sheila Warren um, that's also out once a week um, I have a Twitter handle Mike J Casey uh, don't use it nearly as much as I should but um, you know occasionally you can see me popping in there um, and you know but look I, the most important thing is to read coindesk itself and read all, all of what my tremendous you know However many, we now have 75 or so colleagues around the world um, in both TV podcasts and in in mainly in in editorial uh, writing. So check it out, coindesk.com.
0: Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please rate us and leave a review as it really helps boost our visibility to more listeners. Also, if you have a topic you'd like to see us cover, please get in touch at the following email address, podcast at blockchain.com. Once again, that's podcast at blockchain.com.